WNYC Studios is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Science Friday is supported by Sunbasket. No matter your lifestyle, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy. With delicious meal plans like paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, and vegan with quick and easy recipes, you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. Go to sunbasket.com slash Friday today to get up to $60 off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. You know that your pet can express emotions, right? Well, later in the hour, we'll be joined by primatologist Franz Duvall to talk about the world of animal emotions and why blushing, and why blushing actually says a lot about our human evolution. But first, how do you know if your neighborhood is gentrifying? Well, the rents are skyrocketing, businesses are closing, a new fancy coffee shop is moving in, a new high-rise goes up. Gentrification can be bad news for a neighborhood's original inhabitants. It can mean they are forced to move or suffer greater economic hardship. But if caught in time, cities can try to soften the negative consequences or make choices that slow the gentrification process. So how do you catch gentrification in action? How about Google Street View? Researchers at the University of Ottawa tested that big data approach, and here to explain it is Dr. Michael Sawada, Professor of Geography and Environment and Geomatics at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. So gentrification is a word that evokes a lot of different things for different people. So what, do you have a scientific definition of what it is? Yes. In fact, it's quite simple. The idea of gentrification pretty much is defined as the when a more affluent user group or a more affluent group of people move into a less affluent area of the city and displace the residents that are there um, simply because the rents become higher and the property prices become mm-hmm. higher. And what, what is the usual way to measure it? Well, me- measurement is a very important, as you know, in science. We, we need to have, be able to measure things in order to have a common frame of reference to talk about or define um, various processes. Gentrification is one of those things that's been measured in more anecdotal ways in the past. So anecdotally, um, through interviewing people about their motivations for the gentrification of a particular region or or whether they like it or dislike it. And in the end, it's come down to using census data largely. And of course, by the time you can detect gentrification with census data, it's often over because censuses are only taken every five to ten years in North America, for example, and um, you can so miss the process really entirely. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 got a lot of holes in it, is what you're saying. Exactly. Uh, and your team thought that if we could literally see it in action, uh, you could measure it better, and you used Google Street View data. Sure. Well, we thought, you know, what we're looking at, gentrification as a process, largely involves the updating, usually, of people's properties. It's one of the ways more affluent people express their wealth, for example, is through material means, and that's where they live. So they'll update the facades of their properties, the siding, maybe even um, tear down an old house and put in a new one. 
And we can see that now with Street View. We've had this intersection of technology in the past couple of years whereby we have about 10 or 11 years of Street View imagery archived by Google and anybody can go through that and look at them. So, and at the same time we've had, um, you know, mega advances in deep learning, the ability to go through these large numbers of images with artificial intelligence. Right, right. And so when you went through known places and compared them to what you were discovering with the Google Street View and the AI, how accurate did that turn out to be? It was remarkably accurate. So uh, firstly, we found that our model detected the gentrification that we knew anecdotally was taking place in two of the major regions of Ottawa. One region is a an area where which is very popular with the hipster culture and kind of down the street from that uh, is another area. And these two uh, neighborhoods have been undergoing gentrification in the past 10 years um, and we were able to see that right away in our model. These were the hottest of the hot spots of gentrification. Mm -hmm. So it, it confirmed that our model was working in detecting what we thought it should. And were you able to find places where, you know, gentrification was sort of hiding out that no one had seen before? Yeah, and I think that's the real advantage of the approach that we've put together is that by looking at everything, every single building's street view sequence of images over time in a large city, we were able to find pockets of gentrification that nobody was really talking about anecdotally or otherwise. Interesting. So how do you how do you make use of this new tool and this new data that you have? So w one of the things that we're able to do and is that we can now have maps, detailed maps at least of our city where we've done this and shown that it works. So far, we have detailed maps of gentrification happening, where it's happened, where it's happening, and how intense that process is. So we're now able to measure it right down to the property scale. And this is very important for a lot of different reasons, uh, foremost being, of course, it provides city um, uh, administrators, managers, the zoning office, the permit office with critical information about um, where there's been large dynamic urban change taking place, but also where it's starting. So they can then decide, well, should we let this go uncontrolled in a capitalist type of way, or should we step in and try and mitigate the process so that we ensure there's equitable housing and things like that? Yeah. So, so can other people make use of, of the Google Street View for other purposes? Oh, definitely. And that's something, you know, we're doing right now. Um, we're using Street View to map out two major things in um, Ottawa, uh, just as a proof mm -hmm. of concept again. One is walkability, and that's again uh, a very, you know, uh, something you like or dislike how where you want to walk. You look at a couple pictures, and we ask we ask people, do you want to walk on the left the left picture or the white picture? Which one would you rather walk on? And we can train then a machine to go through Street View and say, well, these are the most walkable areas. Yeah, hey, uh, and you can you could discover what are unfriendly to people, either senior citizens or people with with abilities uh, challenges, right, to get around. Definitely, we've uh, just put in a grant proposal, and ho hopefully it'll be funded, to look at the age friendliness of our entire city using AI and Google Street View again. So using these same uh, big data deep learning techniques can open up a lot of opportunities to uh, uh -huh. target uh, inequalities. How easy is it for you to you go to Google and say, hey, I want to use your Street View for urban planning research. 
you going to give me this stuff? <laughs> Does it work that easily? <laughs> well, um, th- there, there was a... Before July 18th of uh, 2018, it was much easier. Google just gave away Street View uh, 25,000 images a day for free. Then on July 18th, overnight, they increased their price for Street View by 3,000%. And now it would, you know, so now we get 25,000 free images per month instead of per day. And otherwise, it's about $7 an image, uh, $7 per thousand images after that. So this type of work is going to be a little bit more difficult for researchers like me or nonprofits or even city governments that don't have the means to pay the exorbitant cost of Street View now. Well, give me an idea. What is an exorbitant cost? Okay, so let's say for, for a, a, you know, a city the size of um, Ottawa to get the Street View image archive, um, would cost probably about uh, twenty, twenty-one thousand dollars or so, which is a lot of money for a researcher, at least in yeah. Canada. You know, <laughs> where we we don't have quite the same funding structure as in the U.S. institutions. So that's exorbitant for us, and um, that means that there's kind of an advantage given to, let's say, developers, real estate developers, or right. um, other types of real estate interests in. Um, being able to pay for the information, run models like ours, because ours is open and free, and get that information for themselves to get a competitive advantage before right. even the city knows or most people know that gentrification is happening. Or if you wanted to push back, let's say if Amazon wants to move into your neighborhood and you need some data about the the neighborhood, you'd have to spend on your own money to push back on that. Well, that's just it. And, and you know, uh, there, there are these things called carbon gentrification that's happening now, particularly in areas of the U.S. where you have big centers like Amazon in downtowns, where, of course, the um, people who work there want to bike to work or walk mm-hmm. to work. And so they're tending to then buy up real estate and, uh, and whatnot in regions that are close to their Amazon headquarters or Google or whatever it might be. And therefore, people that used to live there can no longer afford afford to um, reside. Mm-hmm. So, so gentrification, do you say in general a gentrification is a bad thing or, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag of things? Well, it, it's, it's one thing that everybody has an opinion on. Yeah. And opinions are valid about gentrification. There, there, there are advantages to it in terms of urban renewal, uh, particularly when it's uh, happening in, a, let's say, a place that's, you know, known for high crime or drugs that's run down with a lot of abandoned houses. Well, gentrification is great because it's going to, um, you know, improve the 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 safety the visual quality of that neighborhood but in some cases it's not so good um, such as when you have a carbon um, let's say carbon people trying to reduce their carbon footprint and mm-hmm. buying up homes in um, established neighborhoods or even climate gentrification where uh, people are on higher ground in Florida uh, mm-hmm. higher ground areas are being bought up by more affluent people and that then makes more vulnerable uh, populations yeah. to everybody else you know if you sit down and you think about there's probably whole bunches of uses you could make for with this data that you even haven't even thought about yet well that's the exciting thing about it um you know we're just at the cusp now you know of uh, deep learning big data and uh what we can mine from visual uh imagery like street view yeah so this is kind of exciting big data for for urban planners definitely yeah it's um and I imagine it's a growing field. This is something, if you're studying to be an urban planner, you want to know more about it. Yeah, I would certainly I would certainly think so, because it's the future, you know, as the tools, uh, these deep learning tools, these 
artificial neural networks become more commonplace and in a couple of years you won't have to be able to even program to use them right. you'll have you'll be able to go online and ask your question put in your street view data and get answers back and uh, that, that's one of the things you know that will yeah. be happening for and putting it in the hands of everybody quickly like what, urban what, planners and whatnot what about Google's competitors Apple's view or whatever? Uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't know that Apple has a view. Uh, Microsoft tried one, Microsoft Street Side, for right. uh, the try to try to compete with Google Street View. It lasted very uh, for a few years, but now it's just uh, relegated to some major U.S. cities, and it's no longer a global effort the way uh, Google has undertaken it to create this data set. Thank you very much, Dr. Sawada, for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Ira. Michael Sawada, professor of geography and environment and geomatics, just a little north of us at the University of Ottawa. When we uh, come back, we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about the last time you studied the inactive ingredient list on your pill bottle. And then a little bit later on, Franz DeWall is going to be here with his uh, new book, Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. We all know that animals have emotions, right? Yeah, we'll talk about it after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Inactive ingredients. You've seen them on the back of that bottle of aspirin you have at home or, or a box of allergy medication you're purchasing. Your eyes zoom right by them, right, as you're looking for the dosage or a list of side effects. You don't give them a second thought because of what they're called, inactive ingredients. That means they don't do anything, right? Well, a lot. Look a little bit closely at those inactive ingredients, and you'll find they include things like peanut oil, lactose, and gluten. And in fact, as a new study out this week shows, over 90% of medications have inactive ingredients that are really active. They can cause allergic reactions in certain patients. Here to tell us uh, what to make of all of this is one of the authors of that study, Dr. Giovanni Traverso, assistant professor at Brigham Women's Hospital, Harvard Med School, and the Department of Mechanical Engineering at MIT. Dr. Traverso, welcome back to Science Friday. No, thanks so much, Ira, for having me. So what else is my blood pressure medication, not that I take it, doing for me besides the medicine itself? What, what compounds, kind of compounds do you find in, in these inactive ingredients? I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, what, what we find, and this was sort of is something that, you know, I came across a few years ago. And, you know, one of the things that we, we set out to do in the study is really analyze exactly what else is in there. And, you know, on average, we find that about 75% of tablets and capsules are actually occupied by these inactive ingredients. And, you know, typically, on, on average, there are about eight other, you know, ingredients in, the, in, in that capsule, and sometimes up to 35. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, there are ingredients like lactose, uh, sometimes starch, which can be wheat-derived, and so hence, you know, the potential for gluten, um, in some instances also even peanut oil, but, you know, many other, you know, uh, there are over a thousand um, uh, chemicals that can that one can choose from, uh, you know, to really help make that, that, right. that capsule. So why do the pharmaceutical companies, if they know this kind of stuff, I mean, they know that people are allergic to lactose and wheat and peanuts, why do they, do they put them in, inside the pills? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think one thing that to, to really emphasize here is that 
the, these inactive ingredients are actually really important. So I think by no means are we suggesting that they be removed. Um, and they play a critical role with respect to the stability of that tablet or capsule, you know, the appearance, potentially, you know, modulating taste or even enhancing absorption or even, you know, providing tamper proofing. And, you know, likely the reason that we have some of these ingredients is, you know, for historic, historical reasons where we've seen some of these work to actually, uh, you know, facilitate the, the, you know, those um, parameters in, 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 in the pills. But, you know, certainly as awareness increases, you know, it's something that I think um, we're all starting to appreciate uh, hopefully more and more. Um, and, you know, I think hopefully we're getting more focus around what should be included and can we find alternatives in some situations. And you think that there are alternatives that could be used? Uh, absolutely. You know, and if you take drugs, you know, dr drugs that are now generic, for example, omeprazole, which is used for the treatment of reflux or um, uh, ulcer treatments, you know, there are many different formulations of omeprazole. So, for example, you know, as a physician, like I will prescribe, let's say, omeprazole 20 milligrams once a day or twice a day, um, but that at that dose, you know, there there can be over 30 or 40 different formulations of uh, of omeprazole, 20 milligrams. And by formulation, I mean, you know, the composition of the inactive ingredients. So you, one might find ones that have lower amounts of lactose or no lactose and others that um, may have lactose. And so, you know, certainly there are alternatives. And, and um, you know, for some drugs, there are many alternatives. For others, there are a few. You know, sometimes when I go to the drugstore and I have a medication that I'm getting and the, the druggist says, you know, I have a, a different manufacturer is making that same drug yeah. and we're using that now. That could have other ingredients in it that I'm not used to from the first drugstore, from the dr first pharmaceutical company. That that's exactly right, you know, and and I think you know, I mean, myself included, and, and colleagues, you know, we've ha we've seen situations where you know similar uh, uh, experiences have uh, you know uh, that that our patients have have had, where exactly as you mentioned, you know, the manufacturer changes and yeah. um, and actually they manifest and and actually new symptoms potentially, and 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 I think that's hopefully by raising awareness that you know there are inactive ingredients in these pills and capsules that they may be the culprit, you know, behind yeah. some of those yeah. symptoms. Speaking, speaking of your colleagues, when you found out that 90% of the medications had these ingredients in them, what was your reactions from your prescribing colleagues to this news? Yeah, so I think, though, you know, just to take a step back on the 90% piece, so one of the things that we recognize of these inactive ingredients is that they can cause adverse effects, and generally we group them into two groups. One is, you know, allergic reactions, or those sort of frank allergies as we recognize them today, whether it be in the extreme, like an anaphylactic reaction or a rash, and then on the other side is sort of intolerances, like GI intolerances. On sort of the allergy side, what we had identified in the study from the literature is that there are 38 ingredients have been associated with allergies. And if one asks the question, you know, what uh, percentage of uh, uh, capsules contain at least one, the answer is indeed, you know, over 90%. But I think one thing to emphasize is that, you know, those events are rare, um, but nevertheless, you yeah. know, they, they are out there, um, but they are rare. So, you know, I think people still recognize that um, these events are rare, um, but, you know, I, I, I think just Again, I think it's all about um, raising awareness both at the patient level and at the healthcare provider level. And I think, you know, it, it's it's changing. I think um, how we think about the, the the prescription process and access to the information. So let's say I'm a concerned consumer. Is there any place online that I can check out what you know what I should be worried about? Is there a resource? 
Absolutely. So uh, I think you mentioned at the beginning, certainly in the drug insert, so you could sift through the text and you will find uh, some of that information. There's also a database out there called Pillbox that has some of that information. You know, but for both, you know, there are a few steps to go through to at least arrive at that. And so one of the things that we see is, you know, potentially helping um, both patients and healthcare providers is developing tools to just make it easier to really help identify those ingredients very quickly and even to help quantify the total amount of an ingredient. So, you know, let's go back to lactose. If someone is taking, let's say, 10 tablets um, to at least quickly, you know, uh, figure out how much lactose that uh, person is consuming, you know, from their their, their medications alone. Um, And so that's one of the next things that we're starting to look at. You say developing tools. What, what do you mean, like an app or something like that? Exactly. I think it's apps. It's also um, systems to interface with the electronic medical record systems, you know, to really start to help quantify, um, you know, the, the inactive ingredient components. Interesting. Thank, thank you for taking time to be with us today, Dr. Traverso. Well, thank you, Ira, for having me on the show. You're welcome. Have a good weekend. Likewise. Giovanni uh, Traverso is a gastroenterologist at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering uh, at MIT. So he works both MIT and Harvard at the same time. My next guest, primatologist Franz DeWall, has spent his lifetime studying the lives of animals, especially our closest cousins, the chimpanzees. He has observed their shifting alliances, their political ranks. He's seen bitter conflicts break out, broken up by peaceful, respected mediators. And he's witnessed them grieve for an attempt to attempt to comfort their dead and dying. But one of the most touching stories in his new book, Mama's Last Hug, is the story he tells of a female chimp who didn't produce enough milk to feed her young. When Franz taught her to feed her baby with a bottle instead, she repaid him with what most of us would recognize as gratitude, holding both of his hands and whimpering sadly if he tried to leave. It's just one of the many fascinating stories of animal emotions he writes about in his new book, and it might leave you wondering, like me, how unique we humans really are. Friends the Wall is a primatologist and professor at Emory University in Atlanta. His new book is Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves, and you can read an excerpt at sciencefriday.com last hug, and you can also call us if you have a question, 844-724-8255. 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Good to see you. Hi. I think last time we talked, we were always on the other end of a phone, and I never get to see I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure anymore. Where <laughs> <laughs> well, we are. Uh, let's talk about Mama's last hug. Who was Mama? Uh, Mama was the alpha female of a very large chimpanzee colony at the Arnhem Zoo in the Netherlands, who I had known for 40 years. A very central figure. Uh, she was not physically dominant over the males, but she was certainly more powerful than most males in, in terms of her political connections and her skills of bringing parties together and so on. And uh, Mama's Last Hug refers to um, her encounter with my professor, Jan van Hoof, who's 80 now, who went into her night cage to say goodbye when she was dying. And so uh, she embraced him. She actually calmed him down because I think he was a bit nervous going in there. We we never normally would go in with an adult chimpanzee. So he was a bit nervous and I think he, she calmed him down, uh, which was typical uh, of her kind of behavior. So what was that last hug like? 
You describe it well, in the book. Well, she, she, um, she embraced him and then tapped him on, on the back of his neck and his shoulders, and she, she had a big smile on her face, and, and she made some sounds. And, and actually, people, people were, first of all, very moved by that encounter, because it has been seen by, I think, 200 million people on, on the Internet. So they were very moved, and I can understand that. But people were also very surprised, and, and that surprised me. Is Why are people so surprised that a chimpanzee may express emotion in a very similar way, similar gestures, similar face, as we do, um, because chimpanzees are our closest relatives. So, of course, everything they do is extremely similar to what we do. And so I felt I needed to explain about facial expressions and about sounds that chimpanzees make. And, and so I took that as the starting point. Yeah, and you verified for everybody who has a pet mm-hmm. that animals really do have emotions. Well, that's interesting is that you say that, because the pet owners usually... They, they, as soon as you say, do animals have emotions, you say, my dog, and they go on and on. But in science, we have been extremely reluctant, unfortunately. I think we went through a very dark period in the previous century where uh, a group of scientists, the behaviorists we call them, had decided that the inner lives of, uh, of, of animals, but also actually humans, the inner lives were irrelevant. So for humans, for example, it's only in the 1960s that we started to talk about the intelligence and, and emotional states and so on. And... Um, in animals, for sure, there was an enormous taboo that we lived under. And so I learned as a student that you shouldn't be talking about emotions. It's a word that you should not even mention. Yeah. you. In other words, if you saw a facial gesture, mm-hmm. it was not an animal smiling. You would just describe it as how the, the muscles move, right? Yeah, yeah. So if, if, if you tickle, let's say, a chimpanzee and the chimpanzee laughs, which, which they do, they have laughing sounds like... Uh, uh, type sounds, they would say, why don't you call it vocalized panting? So, th- so they would <laughs> look for words that make the connection with humans obscure. Mm. Uh, uh, you, you write in the book that some psychologists have argued that the emotions we feel must be more nuanced than those of the animals because we have language to describe, what, 12 different shades of anger, for example. Mm. It's pleasure, fury, resentment, just to name a few. Um, What's wrong? That's based on the idea that language is at the root of things. And, and I don't think I think language is a, is a very late appearing phenomenon in our mm-hmm. species, and 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 also in the development. You wouldn't say that a child who cannot speak has no emotions. So so, language is sort of irrelevant. Language is is something we use to describe our feelings and to talk about them. And I can explain to you why I took a certain decision and how my emotions figured into that. So language is very good to talk about emotions, but they're not at the root of the emotions. Eight four four. Seven two four eight two five five is our number if you'd like to join in the discussion with uh, Franz De Waal, author of uh, Mama's Last Hug on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. What's been the reaction to you talking? I mean, this is one of your main themes, and it's mm-hmm. been for a while that the animals have emotions, and you talk about in the book about tickling a rat on its mm-hmm. tummy, and it's really <laughs> laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and all these different animals and horses uh-huh. and things like that. Well, the reaction is, of course, of the general public is obviously yeah. they, they don't uh, they they assume emotions in animals, even though the animals that we eat they often don't talk about. But any, anyway, the animals that we keep, they they would say. But in science, of course, there has been an extreme reluctance. And even though I have always worked on, let's say, conflict resolution and reconciliation and that kind of things, or empathy, where emotions clearly play a role, even mm. even there, the word emotion is often not used for animals. 
animals because we, I think we confuse emotions with feelings and people wanted to stay away from that. And you, you, you write a really an interesting section about uh, Charles Darwin's book mm-hmm. called The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. And you write, it's the only major book by Darwin that after its initial success was promptly forgotten. Yeah, because it was taboo. Because he, he had talked about frisky cows and how they looked happy when they went were released in the spring. And, and this was considered so unscientific that uh, that book was forgotten. And it, has it come back? Has it been resurrected? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think so. It has come back with the world of Paul Ekman. When he started working on the facial expressions of humans, it came back. And now in animal research also, it's back, I think. How, how important was Conrad Lorenz? back in the 60s. Yeah, Lorenz was quite a m- bit more open yes. than, than the behaviorists about this kind of issues, and he kept a lot of animals and talked very freely and, and very beauty. He wrote beautifully about them. I think he was very much focused on aggressive behavior, and that was a bit of a problem, because after World War II, everyone was focused on aggression for obvious reasons, and so a lot of the research started to zoom in on these negative sides of animals, and, and so we got an enormous amount of research on aggression, but anything affected like like if you talk about empathy or bonding or love even between animals uh, was was really not accepted. Well, he dis- he discovered the uh, bonding, didn't he, with with birds? He d- he did the imprinting work imprinting, on birds. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you write in the book that you've always been fascinated with observing others, even from an early age. So so what led you toward primatology? Oh, that's that's almost like an accident. I, I, yeah. As a child, I collected all sorts of water animals because Holland is full of water, and so salamanders, fish. I also collected birds and mice and frogs and all that kind of things. And then when I went to the university, I wanted to study animals, and I, and I became a biologist. But in in my first university that I went to, they only worked with dead animals that you cut open. So mm-hmm. I found that extremely boring. So I went to another university where they did animal studies, uh, etology, and that's how I rolled into animal behavior. And the primate work is almost like an accident. I could have wor- ended up with fish or with birds or whatever. I, I, I love yeah. animals, and so for me, it doesn't make so much of a difference. But if you want to make comparisons with humans, of course, then the primates are ideal. You ever bump into Jane Goodall? Yeah, of course. Research? Also, yeah. yeah. yeah she, she's very much out there in the, in the field looking mm-hmm. at this kind of stuff also. Uh, we're going to take a break and uh, come back and talk lots more with uh, Franz de Waal, primatologist at Emory and author of Mama's Last Hug. It's very well written. It's a, almost like a personal... Mm-hmm. You know, but but it's more than just about uh, about apes and chimps. It's about all other animals yeah, yeah, and I, their I emotions. Tried, I tried to cover many, yeah. 844-724-8255 is our number. You can also tweet us at SciFi. We're going to take a quick break and be uh, right back with Franz DeWall. Stay with us. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday with my guest, primatologist Franz DeWall, author of the new book, Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. Our number, 844-724-8255. You can also uh, tweet us at SciFi. Lots of people uh, want to talk about it. Let's uh, go to the phone. Let's go to uh, Grania in Houston. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thanks so much for taking my call. Go ahead. And and thank you. And uh, it's wonderful to hear you, Dr. Ball. I've enjoyed your work over the years, and I look forward to reading the new book. Um, I just call as a behaviorist, perhaps to offer a correction or um, clarification. 
I don't think it's true to say that behaviorists have said that emotion is irrelevant. I think throughout the history of behaviorism, we've said that emotion as an internal experience is difficult to study scientifically, but as we have improved our methodology and have developed ways of studying it, we've been able to study it, but we never said it was irrelevant. And as a field that's often misunderstood, I just felt like I'd like to get that clarification out there. Okay, well, Skinner has literally said emotions were irrelevant to human behavior, but uh, um, apart from that, I should say emotions can be studied objectively. The feelings behind the emotions, certainly for animals, I have no access to feelings, and so I can guess at feelings, and I assume that the feelings or the experiences, the inner experiences, so to speak, of a chimpanzee are probably similar to ours, but I have no way of knowing that for sure. But I should also say for humans, I have trouble getting at the experiences. So, for example, Ira can tell me that he was sad at a funeral, but that still doesn't know, I still don't know if he felt as the same way as I feel when I'm sad. So feelings remain largely inaccessible, but the emotions are expressed in the body, in the face, in the voice, in the sweat, in, in, in the breathing, in the heart rate. And so uh, the emotions are always expressed in the body and the emotions are perfectly measurable. Mm-hmm. Right. Thanks for your call. Um, uh, you go through so many different emotions. I mean, you, you talk about bereavement, you talk about uh, funerals that the, that the chimps have for each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell us about some of the more interesting ones that you've discovered. Yeah, so one of the emotions I went through is, is disgust, because psychologists have recently declared disgust a uniquely human emotion, maybe based on moral disgust, when we are disgusted by the behavior, let's say by people who, who get the kids into schools in the, by illegal means, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so we discussed about the kind of things. Um, and so they have declared disgust uh, uniquely human. But disgust is a very old emotion and that, that serves to keep contaminants and parasites out of your body. And uh, we see it in many species. How so do you see it? Give it how, how does it manifest itself? So, for example, dogs are often said to be lacking in disgust because they, they lick their testicles and they eat feces and stuff like that. And people use them as an example. But dogs are very disgusted by citrus, for example. If you, if you, if you cut open a lemon and you hold it, in fr- you shouldn't. Feed it to your dog because mm-hmm. it's actually poisonous to them. But you hold it in front of them, they will show a full-blown disgust response. They will. They and will. What is that? What is that a manifest? They, as? they actually um, flick with their tongue and they shake their head as if they're shaking something out of their mouth. Chimpanzees in disgust uh, displays they they have a face very similar to the human disgust face, where we curl up the lip and and bring the lip close, the upper lip close to the nose. Mm-hmm. You write in your book that uh, that despite her age and mama, who's the top of the Mm-hmm. Off of the topic of the book became the most sought-after female of the group, and you quote quote you in the book, the biggest sex bomb of the chimp. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of amusing with chimps is that the the older females are actually sexually more attractive to the males than the younger ones. People are always surprised by that. So, so uh, Mama, when she was maybe forty or something, uh, so an older female already, if she sported one of these uh, genital swellings, the males would go crazy and they would not eat for days and go after her. Whereas if, if an adolescent female was like that, they would totally ignore her. So the males in chimpanzees, they go for the older ones. And you you talk about the genital swellings, which don't look attractive to we humans. No. You compare them to what would look attractive to humans. Well, humans, uh, cleavage and, and breasts, and men fall for breasts. And, and so 
I, I always meet people who say, how, how can the chimps like these these big pink behinds, but at the same time they're staring at cleavage? And I don't think that's so terribly different. And you also mm-hmm. talk about chim- chimps caring for each other when they're ill, bringing and they bring blankets for, yeah. for the dead. And who would have thought that? You yeah. would have. Yeah, yeah. So we, we had a male at, at Yerkes who was dying, and and he, we kept him apart, and we kept the door a little bit open so that the others could access him. Uh, and he was he was in a very bad shape. And the females would actually bring straw to him and shove it behind his back. He was leaning against the wall. The, the way we do when we go to a hospital and put, mm-hmm. put pillows behind people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, because you study chimps and you find these emotions and behaviors that other people not, would not have found, do you think think that we are uh, misinterpreting the intelligence and possibly the emotions of Neanderthals. And oh, I'm sure the Neanderthals have been downplayed by our species for ages. The Neanderthals must be stupid and backward and so on. I, I think all the evidence that we see is that that's not the case. The Neanderthals actually had brains slightly larger than our mm-hmm. brain. And so I think we have totally underestimated the Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. And, and we carry also, as you know, we carry 4% of the genes yeah. of, of yeah. them. Uh, tweet coming in. Uh, how about reading horse emotions when working with them? Yeah, I'm I'm not a horse person, so I, I know less about horses, but horses have a lot of muscles in their face, and so they have an enormous range of facial expressions. They also can move their ears, which we cannot do and chimps cannot do, but the horses have a very expressive ears also. And so horse emotions are just as clearly expressed, I think, they are. as in the primate. Yeah, it's yes. just incredible how many expressions they have. And, uh, but let's go to the phones to Matt in uh, Binghamton, New York. Hi, Matt. Hi. Go ahead. I, I did, hi. Are you there? Yes, go yes. ahead. Yeah, I, um, in Ithaca, New York, a couple of years ago, I witnessed a squirrel get hit by a car, and there was a whole bunch of other squirrels It was in the fall. And I was just amazed by the reaction of the squirrels. They all came back to try to attend. It was like as if a kid got hit in the street. And I just wondered if you had ever seen anything like that before. Well, many of the mammals, of course, they have attachments. And so maybe this squirrel had certain individuals that were close, like siblings or parents or others that were attached to, to it. And, and they probably also come to inspect what is going on. They may, they may try to help if that's a possibility. But they also, I think, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of curiosity if one of them dies. And so uh, I'm, I'm not sure that what you saw was necessarily grieving or something, because mm-hmm. I would need to need, need to have more details about it. But certainly there's a there's a curiosity about it. You mentioned in your book how many so-called animalistic things humans do without realizing mm-hmm. that we do it. I'll give you an example. Sniffing our hand after we shake hands with somebody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they found that on uh, hidden cameras. They, they had filmed a lot of people greeting each other, and they found that when people greet someone by shaking hands of the same gender, they tend to bring their hand to their nose, um, and they're probably not even aware that they're sniffing the other one, mm. but uh, they're doing that. So. Uh, a tweet coming in, uh, what research is there regarding the response to music in animals? What if any music appears to generate or reflect mood? Well, there is research now on that, uh, increasingly, for example, if anim- whether animals can follow, follow the rhythm of music or follow the rhythm that you as a, as a human present them with, and some animals are actually quite good at that is like like parrots are good at it and pinny pets like the sea lions are good at it um, we, we also did experiments where we present music to apes and see what they like and what they don't like uh, we found I believe that 
that Indian music was uh, really liked by chimpanzees. So people do experiments on this. Whether they experience emotions similar to the ones that we experience with music is, is hard to tell. All we can measure is do they want to listen to it or not want to listen to it. Uh, one of the funniest ones was a very old experiment on, on starlings in a cage which could hop from one perch to another one. And one perch... Uh, produce Mozart uh, and the other one produced Schoenberg and the, the starlings cl clearly pr preferred uh, Mozart so you as, can't you, as you might expect <laughs> <laughs> so you can't tell if certain music is soothing or if certain no. music is excitatory yeah we, 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 maybe there are ways of, of telling yeah. that apart but for the moment we just look at preferences mm -hmm. alright let's go to the phones to Matthew in Denver hi Matthew hi hi go ahead I was wondering I was wondering uh, Franz how you've seen the veterinary world change with regards to animal emotions being more accepted and maybe primates used in re research. Well, I think the, the veterinary schools, they need to do more on behavior. They, they very often ignore behavior. There are some, I know some, that have behavior classes for the students, but they very often ignore the behavior of animals, and, and that includes also the emotions and the expression of emotions in animals. And so I think the, the vet students need to learn a lot more about that. As far as primates in research, you know probably that in chimpanzees that is sort of ended. Chimpanzees are not really used for biomedical studies anymore. And and the other primates that are being kept, like macaques are still kept in, in many facilities, uh, I think should all be housed socially. My view has always been that you cannot keep these monkeys in single cages, as they often still do. And I don't know why they still do that, because it's really not necessary. Uh, and they can keep them in social groups, and that would be so far better than what they do at the moment. Hmm. So a tweet in from Susan, who says, Cats have been recognized often as aloof and uninterested in humans. Owners may disagree. Discuss. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I happen to be an owner. I've all, had cats all my life. And I think cats are just very variable. There, there are cats who are loners. Yes, they exist. But there's also many cats who are very social. Uh, if if you have, like I always used to have four cats, if you move from one room in the house to the other room in the house, all the cats would move to the other to the room where you are, because they, I think there's a, mm -hmm. they like variation and they like your presence and they actually cats are much more sociable than people often assume. You, you write that the emotional lives of birds are on par with mammals. Tell us about that. Yeah, birds have these very strong attachments. So, for example, if you talk about grieving and being affected by the death of a partner, then birds are a prime example because many birds have lifelong bonds between male and female. And so if one of them dies, I, I used to have jackdaws, which is a sort of corvid, sort of cr little crow, actually. And... Um, uh, I had two that were very bonded to each other, and when the female disappeared, she escaped from uh, the voliere. Uh, the male kept calling and calling and calling until he died, basically. He didn't eat and he died. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also talk about rodent faces were long thought to be unaffected by emotions, but detailed studies show other rodents have no problem recognizing no the the rodent literature will always emphasize that they have no facial expressions uh, and now recently there was a study for example in switzerland that was done where they uh, there was a funny study they they, they had two classes of, ro of rats the, uh, one that they tickled and treated very well and they sort of made them very happy and another group that they um, they didn't do much with and uh, and then they asked that an independent judge to judge from the face and the color of the ears 
what they saw that happened, and they could tell the happy rodents apart from the unhappy ones. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with uh, Franz Zawal, author of Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. In the last few minutes, tell us what the emotions tell us about ourselves. How would you summarize that? Uh, I think we are much more emotional beings than we often say we are. We think we are rational beings and we take all these rational decisions, but I think emotions figure into everything we do. And we also underestimate the animality of our emotions because I don't think we have emotions that animals don't have. So basically, our I look at our emotions like organs. I don't have any organ in my body that a frog doesn't have or a rat doesn't mm-hmm. have. I have a liver and a kidney and a heart and brain and so on. And and I think the same is true for our emotions. There are no human emotions in my mind that cannot be traced back to uh, equivalent animal emotions. In fact, you, you talk about uh, in your book that pigs can have an optimistic or a pessimistic look, depending on how they're raised. Yeah, yeah, they have done experiments on yeah. pigs because they do these experiments where they have to react to an Im- ambivalent stimulus and see if they're hoping for food or not hoping for food. And so you can you can test the optimism of the pig. And the optimism of the pig depends on how he, the pig is kept. If the, kept, the pig is kept in a nice space with a lot of straw and, and, and uh, enrichment, the pig is more optimistic than the ones who are kept in a barren place. Mm-hmm. So th- let's not confuse when we talk about animals what we think animal intelligence is and, and emotion mm-hmm. is, right? Yeah, I think I think some animals are maybe not the most intelligent animals, but they are very emotional. Uh, and but I think all all animals, all the mammals for sure, and also all the all the birds, they have uh, quite an emotionality. And do, do animals have comedy, laughter? Yeah, we, yeah. we act, I, I described some examples of the sense of humor of, of the great apes. And so, for example, one example is this was a, a fellow researcher of mine who put on a panther mask and, and hid in the bushes uh, away from the chimpanzees. And then all of a sudden he showed himself. And all the chimps, 25 chimps, they got very angry at him and started throwing stuff at him. Uh, and he did that multiple times. And then at some point he took the mask off, showing his own human face. And, and there were many chimps who had this laugh expression that chimpanzees have as if they thought this was sort of amusing, that he had been tricking them, you know. Other animals, do they also have comedy? I, I'm not sure. People describe always their dogs. Some some dogs seem to have a sense of humor, but I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. What, the, what don't you know yet that you want to know? Oh, I want to know more about the feeling side of the mm. emotions, about how they experience them. So we, we don't know that really. And for the moment, that's why in my book I'm very shy about the feeling part of the emotions. But I think uh, with neuroscience we may get there and we can maybe see if the, if the feelings associated with them are similar to ours. Hmm. When you say neuroscience, you mean probing the brain? So yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you, maybe some non-invasive imaging science right. that we can do on animals that increasingly is being done on animals. Thank you very much for taking time. Good luck You're with welcome. the book. It's a great read. Franz DeWall is a primatologist and professor at Emory, and his new book is Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves, and we have an excerpt up on our website, sciencefriday.com slash last hug. One last thing before we go. This month marks a big anniversary for chemistry, 150 years since Mendeleev proposed the design for the periodic table. You'll probably be seeing all sorts of uh, chemical celebrations 
this month and this year. And we didn't want to miss the party. So this week in our podcast feed, we are opening up the Science Friday Vault to bring you a few tales from the periodic table with voices of the late Oliver Sacks and Nobel laureate Sir Harry Croto. Check it out, along with some other podcast-only specials, by subscribing to Science Friday wherever you get your podcasts. So now when you subscribe to Science Friday, there are extra goodies that we're going to be throwing in there just for your pleasure. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music, and of course, if you missed any part of the program, all week long, you go to our podcast, and you can ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday whenever you want. So every day now is Science Friday. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Plato in New York. Science Friday is supported by IBM. Technology is becoming more open, data more accessible, and the world more innovative. IBM is combining their industry expertise with the open-source leadership of Red Hat to bring you more freedom, more security, more flexibility. Let's unlock the world's potential. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash redhat.